Welcome to episode 7 of series 2 of Beyond the City. For this episode, we're very pleased to be joined by Ian Dale. Ian has had a very varied career so far. He opened his own bookshop, Politicos, in 1997, ran to be a Conservative MP in 2005 and 2009, and now hosts his own radio show on LBC. Ian is also a published author, and it is his latest book, The Prime Minister's, that we'll be speaking to him about today. The book was released in 2020 and is a collection of essays on each of the 55 Prime Ministers that have shaped this country into what it is today. With contributors including Nicky Morgan and Adam Bolton, this is the perfect book for anyone who is passionate about history and politics or who just wants to know more about the history of the United Kingdom. Thank you for joining us today, Ian. It's great to have you with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I've learned a lot from reading this book, but I'm sure that there'll be aspects of the 55 premierships that have shaped this country that even the prime ministers themselves will not have included in their own memoirs. If you could invite two prime ministers to dinner, who would they be? Oh, what a question. Um, One thing I learned from editing this book is that every prime minister is unique. They they all have, uh, I mean, some of them have similar motivations, but they all live in different times. Um, They all go through different experiences. They all react to different events. Um, And I hadn't even heard of some of these prime ministers. I don't know whether you're familiar with the Earl of Shelbourne, but I'd never heard of him. Um, I had heard of vaguely heard of Viscount Goderich. But uh, the the fascinating thing is that some of them literally only served three months. George uh, uh, Canning, when he became prime minister, was it 1827, I think? Um, He was one of the foremost politicians of his day. He had a glittering career, but he died three months later. But if so, in, in any league table of prime ministers, you wouldn't put him uh, up very high because he didn't have enough time to prove himself. But his predecessor, the Earl of Liverpool, was there for 15 years. So it's really difficult just to pick two people who you'd like to have dinner with. But um, since you've asked me, I think I would go for Gladstone as one of them. Um, he was prime minister on four different occasions, and he really spanned virtually the whole of the 19th century. Um, he, be, he, I think he first became an MP in 1822 and finished being Prime Minister in 1894. So if you think all of the different things that he witnessed over that time, and he switched parties, he was a Tory and then became a Liberal. And of course, as I say, was Prime Minister on four different occasions. And Simon Heffer has written the essay in the book on him. And it made me realise how little I knew about Gladstone. So I think uh, he would certainly be one. And you have to pick Winston Churchill, don't you? I mean, I, I think by common consent, he's probably our greatest prime minister ever. And when you think about the, well, not just his period as prime minister, but he fought in the Boer War. I mean, and he had the most amazing career before that and um, died in 1965. So uh, he experienced a hell of a lot and it would just be fascinating to sit down with him and talk about his career. But I could equally make a case for Margaret Thatcher. I, I have actually sat down to dinner with Margaret Thatcher, one of the most terrifying 90 minutes of my life, um, trying to think, oh my God, what do I say to her? And because uh, she she was my absolute idol. And um, but it was a it was a fascinating experience. But Lloyd George as well, you look at you look back at his um, career, not just as Prime Minister, but also Chancellor, bringing in many aspects of what we would today regard as the welfare state. You go back to William Pitt the Younger and our first Prime Minister, Robert Walpole. You could make a case to have dinner with the whole lot. Maybe, maybe, maybe let's just have a dinner of all 55. Definitely. Once lockdown's over, we'll sort that out. 
think we might have to find a time machine to do that. (laughs) So you mentioned briefly uh, being unfamiliar with some of the earlier prime ministers. Well, actually, the majority of the early prime ministers written about in your book belong to the Whig Party. Correct me if I'm saying that incorrectly. No, that's true. Yes. So for those unfamiliar, could you explain a little of the party politics of the early 18th and 19th centuries? Well, you say they belong to the Whig Party, and it kind of was called the Whig Party, but it wasn't a political party in the sense that we think of political parties nowadays. Um, Essentially, until about the 1840s, 1850s, Parliament was divided between the Whigs and the Tories, and then it became the Conservatives and the the Liberals. Labour only came on the scene really after 1900. Um, it's very complicated to explain um, the, the antecedents of the Whigs and the Tories, so I'm, I'm just going to keep it quite brief. Um, but it all goes back to King James I and the Glorious Revolution, and, and um, the, the Tories really supported King James, and um, the, 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 the Whigs were um, slightly different. But they weren't really political parties. They were, they, were re- they were almost factions, and there were factions within the factions, so it was much more common in uh, before the middle part of the 19th century for people to switch parties very easily uh, and they would just belong to different factions and um, that happened quite often. E- even some prime ministers uh, started in one party and finished up with another. And you don't really get that um, nowadays. It's, that was really something that belonged to that era. And it was only really in the, um, after the repeal of the Corn Laws where the Tories split uh, so Robert Peel, who was prime minister, wanted to repeal the Corn Laws, which basically guaranteed the price of, of grain. And um, that the, there were many in his party who decided that was the wrong position, much more traditionalist. They didn't particularly care about the effect that it would have on, on the poor. Um, but I think a lot of people nowadays think of the Whigs as the sort of lefty party of the day and the Tories as the right. Well, it wasn't like that at all. It's a bit like in American politics where the the Democrats and the Republicans, we would class them as conservative. I mean, the the Democrats are portrayed as being left-wing, but actually they're not. Uh, They are sort of wet Tories. Um, in, In the days before the repeal of the Corn Laws, Um, The Whigs were very pro-Empire. They didn't want uh, any degree of parliamentary reform particularly. And and parliamentary reform was also one one of the things that really split both parties in in many ways. And it was only after um, the 1832 Reform Act, which was brought in by uh, the Liberals, Earl Grey as Prime Minister, that um, parliamentary reform really took on uh, a real impetus and it was the 1867 Reform Act, which was brought in by the Tories, but um, the original reform bill was uh, suggested by the Liberals under Lord John Russell. Now, um, he couldn't get it through Parliament. And when the Tories won the, I think it was the 1866 general election, they brought in their own reform bill, largely influenced by uh, Disraeli, and that was um, much more radical than the one which the Liberals had brought in, in, in terms of widening the, the uh, franchise. So a modern p- party system really only started in the middle of the 19th century. 
Uh, and as I say, when the Labour Party was formed in 1900, they got their first MPs in 1906, I think. Um, and that's really been our party system ever since. You, you've had one or two. You, I mean, the, the Liberals obviously went through some huge trials and tribulations after when Lloyd George and Asquith split in the middle of the First World War and had a feud which went on for years. And they never really recovered from that. So since then, it's more or less with obviously the coalition in 2010, it's more or less been a two party system ever since Conservative and Labour. Yeah, it's very interesting, actually, to see the change in the political landscape and the events that led to the parties we have today. Since you mentioned him, students today may be more familiar with the name Helena Bonham Carter than her great grandfather, Herbert Henry Asquith. But the Liberal Prime Minister is credited as a notable alumnus of City University of London as well. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> very exciting for us. <laughs> A quote from Asquith also features in the opening of your book, stating, the office of the Prime Minister is what its holder chooses and is able to make of it. So what do you think is the most important thing that Asquith was able to make of his time? Well, he was a very interesting politician. And, and in some ways, I think he's been quite unlucky and he, he's almost a forgotten Prime Minister now. Um, he became Prime Minister in 1908 after uh, Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman uh, died and um, he served as Prime Minister until 1916 so he had eight years which if you if you think about the average length of a premiership uh, I haven't actually worked it out but it's probably more like sort of three four five years so he was there for a reasonable amount of time and his first years were dominated by two things um, the introduction of aspects of the welfare state, which Lloyd George brought in as chancellor. Although one of the things I learned from the book, which I didn't know before, was that a lot of these welfare reforms were actually the brainchild of Henry Campbell Bannerman. So in a sense, he ought to be given a lot of the credit for these things. But Lloyd George brought in sort of unemployment benefit, uh, pensions. Um, but Asquith was the prime minister then. So I think that was a major achievement of his. Um, secondly, uh, the, there was a constitutional crisis in 1910. There were two general elections in 1910 uh, because the House of Commons refused to pass Lloyd George's budget, which the Conservatives regarded as far too radical. Um, so it went to the House of Lords and the, the, the Conservative peers in the House of Lords just wouldn't put it through. So, the, so Asquith called a second general election it was a bit of a stalemate, actually, um, but there were threats uh, from the Liberals that if, if the budget wasn't passed, then they would create a huge amount of peers to put into the House of Lords to put it through. So King George V was, um, I mean, he'd only just uh, come to the throne by the second general election. And so the monarchy was brought into all of this, which is the last thing you want as in, in your first year uh, as king. Um, but the Liberals prevailed. So that in a sense, I would say was the second achievement. And he, there were all sorts of other reforms that um, Asquith wanted to bring in. But of course, four, three, four years later, um, came the advent of the Second World War. Now, there was all sorts of moves to... Uh, home rule for Ireland had been a running sore um, over the previous, well, I was going to say 30 or 40 years. It goes back a lot longer than that. And of course, we're still dealing with that today in, in many ways. Um, but 
Asquith had lots of ideas as to how to bring this about, but he was scuppered by the outbreak of the First World War. Now, Asquith was a great man in many ways, but a war leader he was not. Um, he, he was very... He wasn't a, a political leader in the sense that we think of war leaders like Churchill and, and, some, and previously Lloyd George. And by the end of 2016, things were going quite wrong in the war. And Asquith was seen as somebody who hadn't really got a grip on things. Um, so Lloyd George basically toppled him. Um, politics can be a very cruel game. And Asquith was essentially ditched. Now, the Conservatives, who um, that they had a very strong presence in Parliament and they were the opposition, they, they could have probably um prevented that but they they thought Lloyd George well give him a go um he's he's much more of a um inspirational uh, leader than Asquith and he had had quite a good record in in all of the jobs that he had held so he, Lloyd George then took over as prime minister so and then Asquith um could never reconcile himself to that um in 1918 in the general election it's the so-called coupon election uh, Lloyd George and the Conservatives essentially stayed in their coalition and um, Asquith's Liberals stood against them and were absolutely decimated. In fact, Lloyd George's Liberals didn't do that well. So by the time the 1920s came around, Asquith was a very marginal figure. He was still leader of the Liberal Party. Um, but the throughout the various general elections in the 1920s, and I think there were four of them, um, by the end of the 1920s, the, the Liberals, the Asquithian Liberals and the Lloyd George Liberals were almost a spent force. They were, they did feature in the coalition in the, in the, in the national government in the 1930s, but only in a very marginal way. That's all really interesting to hear. And moving from Asquith to Attlee, Clement Attlee is regarded as one of the most successful prime ministers in the last century. He was a radical domestic reformer most noticeably leading the government that created the NHS. However, his ability to enact new policies was limited by the financial state of the country that he inherited after World War II. How much further and in what areas could Clement Attlee have gone if he had inherited a country in a better financial state? Well, you could ask that question about any prime minister in a way, because it's very rare that uh, a prime minister comes into power when the land is flowing with milk and honey. There are always challenges for any incoming prime minister. Um, you could say the same about David Cameron um, in, in 2010, how different his period could have been. I don't think the Attlee government could have been much more radical than it was. When you look at a lot of the measures that it brought in, in terms of nationalising various massive industries, when you look at the introduction of the National Health Service, um, and in a sense, Attlee's government mirrored the austerity policies of the Conservative government of 20 or the Conservative Liberal Coalition of 2010. It was an austerity government. Uh, the country was bankrupt in 1945 and it was reliant on American uh, loans, um, which we didn't pay back until very recently. Uh, so it, it's quite difficult to imagine Attlee as a character being a spend, spend, spend prime minister, even in the good times. Um, he, he was the most conservative radical. I think anybody's, I, I think we've had as prime minister in a way. He, he did have lots of radical policies, but temperamentally, he was very conservative with a small C, not, not a particular risk taker. 
But his advantage in that government was that he had um, a lot of really big beasts of the political jungle who who he, he he delegated to and he wasn't a control freak prime minister and he managed his cabinet well and that's one thing if you look when you read the book one of the um main attributes for a successful prime minister is to be able to manage your cabinet and parliament and successful prime ministers do that and unsuccessful prime ministers don't Theresa May would be a prime example of a prime minister that couldn't manage her own cabinet or uh, or parliament. Now you can we can all come up with different excuses for that, but uh, it, it's it's uh, it, it, there are different attributes that prime ministers need to be good prime ministers. As I've said, managing parliament, managing cabinet is one of them. Being lucky is another being in the right place at the right time. If you look at James Callaghan, who became prime minister in 1976, he'd been home secretary, foreign secretary and chancellor of the exchequer. He had all the qualifications to be a really good prime minister, but he became prime minister at the fag end of a, well, Labour had been in power in the late 1960s and two years prior to 1976, but it looked a very tired administration. And the economic situation was dire. The trade unions were just permanently calling strikes. And I, mean, I was a teenager in, at, that, at that point. And I remember thinking there must be something better than this. And he only lasted for three years. Now, in theory, if he'd become prime minister when Harold Wilson first did in 1964, he would now go down in history probably as a very good prime minister. So you need to be in the right place at the right time. And in a sense, you could argue Tony Blair was. You could argue Boris Johnson was, um, possibly. Um, it's difficult to evaluate him since he's still prime minister. Um, but he came in uh, as a get Brexit done prime minister. He did get Brexit done, but he will probably be remembered for the pandemic. And all prime ministers in the end are, are remembered for one thing. The history books will, will just, Lord North, losing America. Clement Attlee, introduction of the National Health Service. I mean, you can go through every prime minister and I could come up with one thing that they'll be remembered for. Um, uh, and so, I mean, it, as I say, it's too early to judge. I mean, at the moment, you would say, well, Boris Johnson probably won't go down as a very good prime minister because of all the mistakes that were made in the pandemic. And yet you look at the vaccine rollout and that could rescue sort of victory from the jaws of defeat. Um, on the day that we're discussing this, there's been an opinion poll that, that puts the Tories into in a 13 point lead. And you think, well, how can that be after 11 years of a Conservative government and a catalogue of catastrophic decisions in the pandemic? But um, it's partly because the Labour Party just hasn't made any headway. And that that's the other point of um, whether a prime minister is successful or not, whether, whether there is a good opposition or not. Very interesting points, especially regarding that often we don't know what will be a defining moment until we look back in hindsight. Now, speaking of managing a cabinet well, as quoted in the opening of your book, David Cameron once said, in order to make good judgments, you need good advice. It seems that often when prime ministers succeed, their success is credited to those around them. But do you think we'll ever see a book titled The Chancellors or The Secretaries? I think there has been a book on chancellors. Um, I think there was one, I can't remember who 
wrote it, but I'm pretty sure about 20 years ago, somebody did one going back, I think it was all the chances going back to 1945. I mean, publishers nowadays are very conservative with a small C in terms of books that they'll take on. And I mean, this book has sold, I think, five times more than I, I thought it would or the publishers thought it would. So the next one I'm doing is on American presidents. But if I went to them and said, oh, I want to do one on chancellors or home secretaries or foreign secretaries, uh, yeah, I, I'm not so sure. And um, those are the three great, great offices of state. I think they would both be very interesting books. And I mean, it may be something that I do when I run out of other ideas. Um, and again, particularly foreign secretaries, I think that that will would be fascinating because they, they all tend to be very uh, unique characters uh, as well. So uh, possibly. I look forward to reading the one on the US presidents. That's coming out in November. And do you think it may be the case that some of these advisors, such as the late Lord Hayward, rather than some of the prime ministers, are the ones that have shaped Britain into the country it is today? Well, it is absolutely right that it's not just prime ministers who uh, shape the course of history. It is their administrations and it's not just them. Some prime ministers are incredibly strong characters. And of course, the longer a prime minister remains in office, the more influence they have over the course of events. Margaret Thatcher is a prime example of that, where by the end, um, I won't say she was dictating everything. Um, there was still cabinet government, but her influence i mean nothing was done without her agreement now in a sense most prime ministers since then have operated in the same way uh but all prime ministers have advisors it's quite right that they should have advisors they need people around them who they can trust it, 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 the, but as Norman Fowler once said um the the outgoing lord speaker he said advisors advise ministers decide and advisors do tend to put forward some quite radical policies and they, they can have a lot of influence, but prime ministers don't have to take their advice. But similarly, cabinet ministers too. I think um, in recent years, and I, I'm, by recent, I, I mean in the last 30 or 40 years, I think, cabinet ministers have declined in importance in terms of decision-making. And that's partly because they, they haven't asserted themselves enough. You look at Theresa May's government, where the cabinet could have asserted itself far more than it did um, and had far a far greater degree of influence. But Theresa May would, would start a cabinet meeting, going around the table, getting views, but she would never give her own or rarely gave her own view. So cabinet ministers didn't really know what she thought. And there was just a lack of direction from her. But they didn't really then take it upon themselves to uh, go their own way in their own departments, which uh, if you go back to Harold Wilson or Ted Heath um, or James Callaghan, um, there were serious people as cabinet ministers. Uh, um, James Callaghan had, had, had a very, very uh, high quality cabinet in terms of big political beasts. I'm afraid if you go around the cabinet table nowadays, that is not the case. Now, I sometimes think we all get to an age where we think, oh, it was much better in my day. There was big political beasts around the cabinet table. And I tend to think that um, in Margaret Thatcher's time, where there were big political beasts, a lot of people then would have said, oh, it's not the same as in Harold Macmillan's day. Um, so you have to be a little bit careful of suffering from old gittism here. 
Um, but the, the role of the cabinet is far more important than the role of individual advisors generally. But then you look at the influence that Dominic Cummings had over Boris Johnson and you think, well, that maybe was an example of where advisors took on far too an important role and almost were, I mean, I remember Dominic Cummings was dis not described as the deputy prime minister, he was described as the prime minister because people seemed to think that he was dictating events rather than Boris Johnson. As I read through each of the essays about the different prime ministers, I found that learning about their background and personal qualities helped me to better understand their decision-making. Yet when Theresa May showed her more personal side by shedding a tear during her resignation speech, some of the media went as far as ridiculing her. Do you think that certain sections of the media need to be kinder so that our political leaders are able to display more of their personal side to enable us to understand them and therefore their decisions better? I mean, I've been on both sides of this. I, I tried to be a politician and now I'm in the media. And I think having been in politics gives me a greater understanding of the motivations of politicians and it means that I can question them better when I interview them I can get inside their head a bit better than maybe some people and, and there, I think there is a natural tendency on the part of the media to always think of the bad things because I mean good news is not news bad sort of bad news is news that's what everybody concentrates on in a way understandably um, they don't often i mean it's like if you listen to the today program it's basically a succession of pressure groups publishing a report asking for more money when do you ever hear a today program interviewer say yes but where's where's this money coming from because that's what the politicians have to work out if they're going to spend extra money it's like today we're talking about the nurses only getting uh, uh, or people in the nhs only getting a one percent pay rise now, politically that that's a catastrophic decision because it is slightly less than inflation is going to be but nobody has asked, well, how much would it cost if it was 2%? Well, it's 500 million. Okay, well, where's this 500 million going to come from? Which budget would that come from? Or do we then borrow another 500 million? What are the consequences of that? Uh, and I think that the media therefore need to sometimes think about the, the, the dilemmas that politicians have in front of them. Um, and in terms of being kinder, well, I mean, the, the media is not there to be kind. The media is there to scrutinize. And I think that uh, sometimes politicians are going through very difficult times and don't get a lot of understanding. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure I could legitimately hand on heart say that it's the role of the media to empathize with politicians. Um, people, I, I mean, you say that Theresa May was ridiculed when she shed a little tear. Um, I, I, I'm not sure I remember it that way. I think it was a, a, a very human moment and perhaps she would have benefited if she'd shown a few more human moments over the course of her premiership. Margaret Thatcher, um, I remember when her son went missing in the desert in Africa, uh, she shed a tear and, and uh, quite a few other occasions as well. That didn't damage her as a politician. Um, I mean, you don't want a prime minister who's blubbing all the time because they, they, are, they, they might have to be war leaders. And you, you look at um, certainly every prime minister since Margaret Thatcher has had to involve themselves in military decisions, whether it's this country going to war or whether we're supporting NATO or America in, in a conflict, uh, you have to make those decisions. And I know 
and that this is something that isn't reported very much. Margaret Thatcher wrote a personal letter to every single family who were affected by um, somebody being killed in the Falklands War. Um, and she would, when she heard the news of like a ship going down, I mean, there, there's plenty of people who witnessed her shedding a tear in those circumstances, but that never came out at the time. And I'm not sure it would have been a good thing if it had. Um, I think Tony Blair was deeply affected by people who were killed in the war in Iraq. Politicians in the end and prime ministers are human beings, just like the rest of us. Um, I, I can't think of a single prime minister who was emotionless, who would not be affected uh, by, I mean, if they make the wrong decision and they know when they make the decision that, well, if it's wrong, um, I, people could die as a result of the decision that I'm making. Well, not many people could cope with that kind of responsibility. And sometimes maybe the media need to understand that just a little bit better. Yes, I think it is finding that middle ground between the scrutiny and remembering that we're all human beings. Yeah. As Vincent mentioned, learning more about the personal qualities of these historical figures allows people to connect with them years later. Record-breaking musical Hamilton has resulted in millions around the world enraptured by the details of the United States political beginnings. The story's villain is portrayed as King George III, who seemed to be calling the shots. However, Lord North, featured in chapter 11 of your book, was prime minister at the time. Comparing this with Queen Elizabeth and Boris Johnson today, can you tell us about how the relationship between monarchs and ministers has evolved over time? Well, that's something, again, which I found fascinating reading the essays in the book, because modern day prime ministers need to manage their own parties and they need to manage the electorate. Prime ministers in the 18th century and certainly the first half of the 19th century, they had one audience that's an exaggeration, but their main audience was the monarch, because if the, if the monarch didn't like them, they would dismiss their administration and get in a new prime minister who they did like. Um, and it was fairly arbitrary. It was often done just on personal likings. That changed under Queen Victoria, where although she did have influence at the beginning of her reign, by the end of her reign, um, the, the constitutional side of... Um, dealing with prime ministers was, was very, very different. And it, since then, the prime minister has taken on a much more consultative role rather than being directly involved in the dismissal or formation of governments. Um, so although the, the, the Queen in theory still has quite a lot of constitutional influence, it is just that she can make her views known um, to the prime minister of the day but in the end, it is down to the Prime Minister. And that, there haven't really been many occasions over the last century when the, the monarchy has come into direct conflict with the government of the day. Uh, people say that Margaret Thatcher and the Queen did not get on. Well, that was certainly not my reading of the situation. It, it, I think that was influenced by the fact that it was two women and the, and the media loved to pitch two powerful women against each other. Um, and, and the depiction of the relationship in the crown, I think, is so distorted as to be almost risable. Um, but I, I can't really think of any occasion over the last century, apart from the abdication crisis in 1936, where there has been a real conflict between the monarch and the prime minister of the day. Now, that is not the case 
um, well, between the day the, between the formation of the office of prime minister, if you can call it that, in 1721, and I would say probably um, probably up to the 1820s. And moving from how the monarch has changed to the role of prime minister in your book and on this episode, we've discussed both of those things about how it's changed over the last three centuries. How do you envisage that the role of the Prime Minister will change during the upcoming century? <laughs> well, that's an impossible question to answer um, because it, it is still largely based on personality. And if you have a domineering personality who wants everything to be controlled by Number 10 Downing Street rather than letting cabinet ministers make their own way and make their own decisions, um, I mean, that's one way, way of going. We have seen power centralised in Downing Street to an increasing degree even though Boris Johnson, I think, is probably one of the more hands-off prime ministers, you still have, I mean, a minister cannot go on television or radio nowadays without the permission of number 10. It never used to be like that. And I think it's it's really unhealthy. And I would like to get back to, to the days when you had proper uh, cabinet government, where number 10 had its role, but essentially let the government departments um, do their thing. Obviously, the prime minister needs to direct things um, to a certain extent, but it, it, it's just got, there's too much uh, power, I think, now in the hands of the prime minister. Moving on a little bit to talk more about yourself and your career. As listeners may know, you're both a successful author and presenter, having won acclaims for both. How did you find your own voice? And do you have any advice for students on how to communicate in a personable yet effective way? I think that last point is very important in that whatever field you're working in, whether it's the media, politics or indeed business or anywhere else, you have to be able to communicate. And if you are a good communicator, you will come across as a personable, likeable person, even if you have a bit of steel in your uh, backbone. Um, I think over the years, I've you learn what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And I don't think I was probably I'm a 58 now. Um, I don't think I was 50. I don't I don't think I really knew myself until I was 50, which sounds a very strange thing to say. But I know now what I'm good at and I know now what I'm not so good at. So and, and by the time you get to my age, the things that you're not so good at, you're frankly probably never going to be very good at. So you've got to it is important to recognise your own weaknesses and particularly when you're in your 20s, maybe to do something about it. So if you think you come across in a maybe a negative way to people, well, try and do something about it without trying to pretend that you're someone you're not. I mean, we all, I think the public generally can spot a fraud a mile away. And there are some people in the media and politics who are frauds in terms of their personalities where they go on camera, the, camp, the red light goes on and they adopt a completely different persona to the one that they adopt privately. Now, sometimes they don't mean to do that. Um, Pretty Patel is a good example of this, where privately she's brilliant company, she's very funny, lovely person, but when a camera goes on, something, I don't know, something kills her spontaneity, something, she just comes across as a bit of a robot. Now, you'd like to think that if someone had got to the cabinet, they might have done something about that by now. Um, and then there are other people who come across as lovely, genuine, kind, funny people in public, 
and then behind the scenes they are utter bullies and absolute shits uh, and you, you you start to get to know who these people are after a while and I think well most people probably can spot a fraud a mile off so I think keeping it genuine is important and look if, if you if you if you know you're not good at making speeches there's probably not a lot that can make you good at making speeches don't become a politician because put, I mean making speeches is part of what a politician does but there are lots of other aspects to it and if you have say there are 10 qualities that you need to make a good politician and you possess seven or eight of them you're probably going to be okay um, I mean I knew that I would never be very good at creating policy I'm, I'm just not my brain doesn't work that way but give me a policy that I agree with and I can go out there and market it and sell it to, to people. So you need a mixture of people in politics. You don't want a parliament full of identical politicians. You want people with different life experiences. Um, and I think we have got that more maybe now than we used to have in some ways. Um, but it's you don't want a parliament of career politicians, for example, people who leave university, get a job as a researcher, then become a special advisor, and then become a member of parliament, then a minister. You want some of those people who maybe haven't been sullied by the experiences of everyday life. But I think working in uh, the public sector, working in the private sector, and then going into parliament gives you a much better breadth of experience. Um, I, I first applied to go on the Conservative candidates list when I was 26, which in retrospect was ridiculous. I mean, OK, there are a few politicians who get elected in their mid-20s, but get some life experience first. Absolutely. And I mean, it's a biological fact that diversity is essential to evolution. And hopefully these uh, pandemic times will give people a chance to self-reflect and work on those qualities that they need to improve. And during your broadcasting career so far, you have interviewed many politicians. Indeed, you interviewed both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt on multiple occasions during the Conservative Party leadership contest in 2019. As you spoke to them, did you ever think that that could have been you sitting in their seat if you had decided against quitting party politics in 2010? No, is <laughs> the short answer. Again, I'm I know that I would be a rubbish prime minister so it never entered my head that I I think a lot of people who do become MPs they think well I've got a one in 650 chance of doing it um I never really occurred to me when I be, wanted to be an MP I thought and it never even entered my head that I wanted to be a minister particularly um I thought I would be a good MP I thought I'd be a good constituency MP. I think some of the aspects of Westminster would have frustrated me having to toe the party line. I think I would have become sort of a bit of a maverick, which would probably have meant that I would never have become a minister anyway. But um, it, I did have an ambition in the end. Uh, I would have loved to have been Secretary of State for Transport, which you might think is a weird one to aspire to be, but you can actually do things in that department that really affect people's lives. Um, so that would have been quite good. But no, I, I just, it's, you look at all of the different qualities that a prime minister needs, and I don't think I would have had enough of those qualities to, to have got there. Um, and I look, I admire people who put themselves forward to do it. And I think, I mean, what, watching Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson sort of slug it out in that contest, I, I was actually quite, I mean, I did 10 of the leadership hustings. 
And by the end of it, I was more confident that either of them would be better than I thought they would be at the beginning, which I suppose is, is, is a good thing. I mean, I've always thought that Boris Johnson would either be a really brilliant prime minister or a terrible one. I'm still not quite sure which it'll be. I mean, it probably will be somewhere in the middle in the end. Um, but uh, no, not for me. Fair enough. And I'm 20 years old and Mika is 22. If you could travel back in time, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Well, I actually wrote a letter to my 16 year old self on my website um, quite a few years ago. Um, I can't remember uh, exactly what that said. Um, but I think one of the things I would say is just be honest to yourself about who you are. Um, don't try to pretend to be who you're not to be. And it goes back to what I said earlier, just, just sort of keep it real. Um, I don't have many regrets in my life, certainly from a career point of view. I, I would have liked to have been a member of parliament, but I, when I was your age, I wanted to be a, a member of parliament or a radio presenter. Well, I've done, I've got 50% of that and I had a go. And I suppose one of the things I, I would say to my younger self was, well, don't be afraid to have a go at things, even if you fail, because there are two, two types of people in this life. There are people who are so afraid of failure that they never take any risk and just play it safe all the time and then there are other people who aren't afraid to fail and if you do fail you learn from it and regard the failure as an opportunity to do something else and I've I can't say I've had like major failures in, in my career but I have had to sort of at times I I, I had to leave the company that I formed after six years once where I was sort of half sacked half resigned because I fell out with the guy that I was in business with and I literally had nothing to fall back on um but I picked myself up and I then I opened politicos well if that hadn't happened I wouldn't have opened politicos I wouldn't then have got to know people in the media I wouldn't then have got into television and radio so there's all these different sliding doors moments in your life that open up lots of different opportunities so I think it's it's identifying those moments and really going for them. And also, um, I mean, I I think my advice to my 16, 16 or 20 year old self would have been to be much more courageous about my sexuality, which I, I didn't come out until I, well, to my family and a lot of friends until I was 40. I, I, I regret that now. I wish I had done that earlier. But it, it was done for the best of intentions. I didn't want to hurt my mother, basically. Well, I mean, that's not a bad motivation to have in life. Um, but looking back, I think it would have been better to have done that earlier. So that, that's the only sort of major thing I probably would say that I would advise my 20-year-old self to do differently. Thank you. I think that's really important advice and a great way to end this episode. Thank you for joining us today, Ian. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for joining us for episode seven of season two of Beyond the City with Mika Kumar and me, Vincent Masterson. You can buy Ian Dale's great book, The Prime Ministers, in all good bookshops, both in store and online. If you enjoyed this episode, please give our podcast a five-star review. We really would appreciate it. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode with Matt Chorley from Times Radio. Thank you.